This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Justice Action Network. Justice Action Network is the largest bipartisan organization working to reform the justice system at the federal level and across the country. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. With the fate of a major bipartisan criminal justice reform bill hanging in the balance on Capitol Hill, two of the bill's co-sponsors, Senators Dick Durbin and Chuck Grassley, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, joined the Washington Post on Tuesday, December 4th, to discuss the likelihood that Congress will move forward with a vote on the proposed law before the end of the year. Other speakers, including Governor Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania, as well as supporters and opponents of federal and state criminal justice reform measures, highlighted important debates around reform of mandatory minimum sentencing, the country's bail system, police community relations, and other key issues on the nation's criminal justice agenda. In this segment, elected officials and legal experts debate the best approach to criminal justice, from the use of mandatory minimum sentencing to re-examining the country's bail system and community police relations. Let's listen. Well, I am back. Uh, Fortunately for you, I've got an equally uh, interesting and smart panel here, and so I won't be talking. I won't be talking that much, and I'll be letting them do most of the talking. Again, welcome to Post Live. I'm Wesley Lowry, a national correspondent here at the Washington Post. Um, I'd like everyone to join me in welcoming uh, Senator Mike Lee uh, of Utah, um, Vidya Gupta, President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and formerly of the Department of Justice uh, Civil Rights Division, and Larry Lizer, the President of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys. We can welcome them all. Before we get started, I want to remind you all again that you can weigh in with questions of your own, um, and I will happily ask them to our distinguished panel, and you can do that by tweeting at us using the hashtag postlive. Uh, let's jump right in. You know, Senator Lee, I wanted to start with you because you've been out front um, pushing and in some cases now defending the uh, bipartisan First Step Act. Um, first of all, is, is there going to be a vote on this? What's, what? <laughs> I sure hope so. There needs to be. Look, this is something that I've been working on for the better part of the eight years I've been in the United States Senate. And we've never been closer than we are right now. We had a good opportunity a couple of years ago where we had a bill that was ready to go. President Obama was ready to sign it, and uh, that bill would have gotten more than enough votes to pass. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't brought to the Senate floor in time. Uh, But we're now at, at a point where we could do it again. Uh, Look, uh, for the bill that we have right now, I've personally counted 26 Republicans, 26 Republicans who who have said, I will vote for this bill if you put it on the floor right now. According to my friend Cory Booker, uh, we've got 49 Democrats. Dick Durbin says we've got between 45 and 49. Um, uh, Let's assume Cory's right. We've got 49 Democrats. We've got 26 Republicans. That's 75. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that is a substantial figure. Uh, it's eight votes north of the 67 votes uh, uh, required to override a presidential veto, which, by the way, we don't need here because the president supports it and will sign it. So we need to get a vote. There's no reason why we shouldn't take a vote. You've got an overwhelming supermajority in the Senate, and I think a corresponding supermajority in the House that would support this. This bill needs to pass this year. So, 
How do you defend the bill from criticism from colleagues like Senator Tom Cotton who say that this bill isn't in keeping with conservative principles? And do you have any concern that that type of criticism is might be what's keeping Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from bringing this up for a vote? Well, I disagree with that characterization. I disagree with not only every word, every every syllable of it. Um, look. Um, this bill would make the American people safer. This bill would focus our prosecutorial and criminal justice resources where they need to be, which is on those who present the greatest threat of violence, the greatest risk of recidivism, and not on people who are being institutionalized, who are just being warehoused for sometimes decades at a time. And if you don't believe me, believe someone with... Uh, a, a very long credentialed history, Michael Mukasey, former federal judge, former U.S. Attorney General, who uh, not too long ago came and spoke to many of us as Republican senators and said, look, the day is soon coming when one-third of all federal law enforcement resources are going to be going toward incarceration. And, and he said, the, the more money that goes into that, the less money we have to stop crime and to protect the American people. That's why, if you really are serious about being tough on crime, pass this bill, pass it now. Now, Larry, you spent over 30 years as a prosecutor. Um, and, and much of the conversation we're having currently here in Washington and in the States is about the, the role of mandatory minimum sentencing. C can you talk a little bit from your experience about how prosecutors use these mandatory minimums and, and if you believe there should be some reforms to, to when prosecutors are required uh, and when judges are required to, to sentence people to certain lengths of time. Sure, I'd be glad to. First, I keep my day job. I need to say that I'm not here uh, as a representative of the Department of Justice or the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia, where I presently serve as an assistant United States attorney. Any comments I make are solely that of the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys, which represents our assistant United States attorneys around the country. Mm -hmm. Before I get to mandatory minimums, I feel obligated to respond to the senator's suggestion that this bill is somehow going to make us safer. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, the problem with the bill in part is it conflates the federal system and the state system. At the federal level, we're not prosecuting drug users or drug possessors. Uh, about 1% of federal prosecution at the drug level is geared towards simple possession. And most of that comes from people who are muling across our southern borders 30 or 40 kilograms of uh, marijuana uh, to such an extent that we just plead them down to possession. So 99% of the cases we prosecute in the drug area are drug traffickers. These are people who sell the poison of drugs, methamphetamine, heroin, fentanyl, for a profit. Uh, about 77% of those people have prior convictions or prior arrests. Um, so it, it, it's, it's just not that simple. The other problem we have with this bill is this is kind of like stealth legislation. It was passed by the House without any hearing. And this bill, the first time we saw this bill was on the eve of Thanksgiving. And there's been various iterations and changes and modifications with good cause because the bill is terribly flawed. Let me give you some examples of some of the things that are uh, excluded from. These are people who uh, would be eligible for what they call time credits. So if you're assaulting, um, resulting in substantial bodily harm to a spouse or child, you can still get time credits. Assault with intent to commit rape or sexual abuse, you can still get time credits. Assaulting law enforcement officers with a deadly weapon, you can still get time credits. Drive-by shootings, uh, female genitalia mutilation, the list goes on and on 
of things that make this bill flawed and we shouldn't go forward with a flawed bill. We need to have hearings. We need to have experts come in and tell us what the recidivism rates. The federal recidivism rate is the lowest in the country compared to any state five years out. And that's the gold standard. Recidivism is an indication of how successful your programs are. And there is no program at the state level which is modeled in this new bill that equals what we currently do at the federal level. To answer your questions on mandatory minimums. Sure. Uh, mandatory minimums have been a, a, a very successful tool that had over the years since uh, the late 70s, early 80s, when we recognized we needed to take a bit of a harder stance with law enforcement. We had an epidemic of crack cocaine. It was destroying our minority communities and mandatory minimums came into place. Mandatory minimums are not a creation of assisting United States attorneys. They're not a creation of the judiciary. They're a creation of the Congress. And the Congress says, if you're a certain kind of criminal and you're committing certain kinds of crimes, we want there to be a consistency in punishment. Now, we have uh, all kinds of uh, what they call safety valve and, and other ways of avoiding mandatory minimums, but the most effective way of avoiding your mandatory minimum and the tool that we as prosecutors rely upon day in and day out is the reality that if you cooperate with us, if you let us move up the food chain, if you let us go up to the person who's bringing the stuff in from Mexico or uh, other, other places outside of our borders, you will get your sentence reduced. You can get outside of the mandatory minimum. So who's serving a mandatory minimum in our present system? About 12% of our federal inmates. These are people who are second offenders, didn't qualify for the safety valve, and they refused to cooperate, and they had significant amounts of drugs, which got them into the mandatory minimum status in the first place. So mandatory minimums are something that we use and rely upon and has been very effective over the years. Our crime rate plummeted after mandatory minimums went into effect. Was that the only reason the crime rate plummeted over the last 25 years? No. Is it a factor in the reduction of the crime rate? Absolutely. So, so before I go over, Vanita, Senator, I just want to give you an opportunity quickly to respond to some of specifically the procedural criticisms of, of this bill. And, and also, if you, if you think anything there was characterized you know, in ways that you wanted to add some context. Sure. As to the procedural criticisms, look, legislation like this, components of it, uh, has been around for years. We've had more hearings than I can count in the Senate Judiciary Committee, in the House Judiciary Committee, on various components of this legislation. Now, it's true. The First Step Act, as presently constituted in the United States Senate, is different than other pieces that have moved through, but most of the major procedures have received hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee and or the House Judiciary Committee. As to the point about mandatory minimums in the federal sentencing system, look, I'm not saying that minimum mandatory sentences have no place, nor am I saying that uh, we ought to be concerned about the small-time uh, user, the bare non-commercial possession for personal use. You're, you're right. That's a very small part of this overall system. Nor am I suggesting that locking people up, warehousing them for decades at a time, might not have some uh, demonstrable consequences for public safety. In a sense, you could argue that anyone who shows any signs of any kind of aberrant behavior uh, relative to the law should be incarcerated for a whole long time. There are lots of things we could do that would perhaps in the short run show some favorable results. I don't want to live in a society where a guy like Weldon Angelos can be locked up for 55 years for three dime bags. <clears throat> so <clears throat> that's why we have to focus on what 
is actually fair and, and what also is capable of bringing about a reduction in the reoffense rate. Because over time, if you lock too many people up for too long, uh, 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 under circumstances that don't really warrant it, you'll have more disrespect for the criminal justice system and you'll have more alienation. You'll have fewer people who have the bonds to institutions of civil society, their families, their co-workers, their neighbors, uh, and, and they themselves will be more likely to reoffend. I don't want to live in that kind of society, and that's what this bill is designed to do, to make our society one in which we have fewer criminal offenses, making us all safer. Now, Vanita, I, I want to go to you, because one of the things that I think is interesting about this legislation is that it frankly does... It, it is a compromise. Uh, there are a lot of things that folks in the civil rights community uh, wish were different, wish, wish went further. Um, that while this legislation has received some criticism from the right, there's also plenty of criticism from the left of it as well. Where, where do you come down on the First Step Act in terms of is it the right first step? Is there, do you wish it did more? Um, and, and, and how does that conversation in terms of what we are willing to even possibly bring up for a vote and, and where, and like I said, many people might argue not that doesn't go as far as folks would want it to. Does that speak to the, the difficulty of this conversation? That, that even on a bill that many people consider a compromise, there still is some significant opposition to from the right. Look, I mean, I think the reality is that um, almost every piece of legislation is in some ways a compromise. And I think it was really important, the civil rights community was largely opposed to the initial iteration of the First Step Act that passed in the House because it was only focused on back-end reforms. And it actually, I will say, to Senator Grassley's credit, to Senator Lee's credit, to Senator Durbin's credit, they were pretty steadfast in insisting that you couldn't have real criminal justice reform without meaningful sentencing reform at the front end. And what I think is really important for people to, to recognize here about where we are is that in many ways, Congress is years uh, late to this party. I, you know, I was in Texas back in 2004 when Texas was one of the first states to enact really meaningful criminal justice reform at the state level. We have had now almost over a decade of states, red and blue, enacting some of the more kind of, you know, the, the versions of these reforms that go even further. And we haven't seen the kind of explosive, kind of hysterical rhetoric around crime and crime increasing. In fact, crime went down during that same period. Nobody exactly knows why crime went down. There hasn't been, you know, you can't put your finger on the one cause. Criminologists have studied it. But look, we have to acknowledge now in this country, and I think it's important to kind of center race on, in this conversation, that, that African-American uh, communities have been absolutely devastated by this 40-year experiment in the war on drugs. And the addiction to incarceration that has been fueled in part by a lot of misplaced incentives in the system. And, and we are seeing, to me, the greatest example to push back on this notion that criminal justice reform is necessarily going to increase um, crime rates is just look at what states are doing around the country. Louisiana last year passed some of the most important uh, criminal justice reform after for, for years having the highest rate of incarceration. We, and, and you are seeing this across a whole range of issues. It's not just sentencing reform. It's pretrial justice reform, trying to reform bail systems that have largely criminalized poverty uh, and put in, created our jails, made them into really warehouses for people in men, with mental health crisis and substance abuse disorders. We have chosen to respond to almost everything in the last, for so many social problems with a criminal justice model. It's not to say that 
that there aren't things that we need to make sure that we do. We want, we all want safe communities. It is something that when I was with the Justice Department that was pushed on every level. Uh, we have seen that, uh, you know, get dismantled recently. But the reality is states have been doing this. It has been successful. It has been a bipartisan issue. Senator Lee and I don't agree on a whole lot of other things, but this is like the one issue that is bringing folks together right now in Congress. And it is doing so because we all live in states that have pushed for these reforms and that have restored communities and families. This is called for a step back for a reason. Uh, I will say as a civil rights advocate, I think there are many things that it doesn't do, but it is um, it is important that we drive towards meaningful change in this country to actually be able to move forward and frankly get with the times um, because the federal government is in some ways behind. Certainly. Larry, are, are there, what are some reforms that you think your colleagues might be able to get on board with? Are there steps that you think the justice system should be taking, even if it's not mandatory minimum, even if it's not sentencing reform? Because we do talk about kind of a wide array of potential reforms in the criminal justice system. And I think most people agree that the system doesn't operate efficiency, and there certainly are some disparities uh, and, and outcomes and collateral consequences to those outcomes. What are some steps, if not those included in this bill, that, that you think you might be able to maybe in the second step or the third step? What, what, do, you, what do you think the, the prosecutors might support? Well, I think every assistant United States attorney wishes there was some magic wand that you could touch a convicted felon and say, you're not going to go do it again. If there was a program, evidence-based program, that would enable us to lower the recidivism rate, we, we're all for it. We're all for it. The problem is that the examples that they're using in this bill have been tried at the state level, and they have not risen to the success rate that we currently have a recidivism rate at the federal level. The, the national average five years out at recidivism is 77 percent. At the federal level, the five years out at the, uh, for convicted, reconvicted uh, fe federal felons is about 24 percent. We do it better than they do it right now. And that's why we need to have hearings. We need to discuss these issues. If we're going to do this, if they think the system is broken, and we don't think the system is broken, do we think it can be improved? Absolutely. Everything can be improved. You know, there was a, uh, a case, um, uh, Kansas versus Marsh, and Justice Scalia cited a 15-year study of uh, how many people are convicted that are actually, in fact, ultimately shown to be innocent. That study showed it was less than 1 percent. Professor Paul Cassell from the state of Utah, former federal judge, currently professor, recently wrote a law review article that indicated that Justice Scalia had it right. It's about 1 percent. 99 percent of the people we prosecute are truly, actually guilty of the crime for which they're prosecuted. What profession out there can claim a 99 percent success rate? Now, once you've been convicted, the purpose of sentencing is to punish, huh? to deter, to incapacitate, and yes, to rehabilitate. And we're all for rehabilitation. Though we need to sit down and study these issues, not ramrod them through in the next couple, three weeks uh, without some hearings, without some studies. Yes, we've looked at various aspects of this over the years, but this is a new bill. We saw for the first time on the eve of Thanksgiving, there's been various iterations. Some uh, are trying to make adjustments and changes, but we need to sit down as a country and discuss these issues, bring in the experts. There are obviously some differences of opinions that we have as to these recidivism rates. Uh, but it's something we just can't rush through. We need to sit down and have hearings. I'm going to jump in. 
Well, I, I just think that it is really important to recognize just how much uh, re these reforms around the country are evidence-based. In fact, for so long, the problem with criminal justice policymaking was that it was emotional, it was politicized in election cycle after election cycle. Both Republicans and Democrats, frankly, were guilty of ratcheting up sentences without any kind of mooring in evidence. And what we're seeing now is incredible study behind that is animating the kinds of reforms around the country. I have represented men and women in the federal system that have been in for nonviolent offenses that have received life sentences. These are folks that have that, like the Weldon Angelos's of the world, uh, are, are facing enormous, they're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison for the kinds of things that I don't think, as a society, we should be keeping them in prison for. And frankly, the evidence is showing around the country that when reforms have taken place around states as diverse as Pennsylvania, California, Louisiana, uh, Oklahoma, that you, we are seeing that public safety is, is retained, is promoted, that communities are, are kept hold, that we are, we are changing, finally, the kind of double penalties that we impose even after people serve out their sentences. This has got to be a comprehensive approach. And I think it is actually very commendable that we are now at the point in our history where we are driving criminal justice policymaking based on evidence and facts and not just on politics and emotion, which is a dangerous place for us to be. Certainly. Senator Lee, I want to briefly give you the last word. I want you to weigh in on that. But then also, my question for you is, this is called the First Step Act, right? What do you think the second step should be? Um, what The day after you guys pop the champagne on the passage of this, because you've said it's going to get a vote, and, and you said you have the votes for it, what are the next steps you think you guys can come together on um, in terms of additional reforms in the criminal justice system? As to the point about 99% of convictions being substantiated by the evidence, they, they did it. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that that's the case. It sucks if you're part of that 1%. But I, I'm glad, glad that the success rate is that high. That says absolutely nothing. It's a complete non sequitur in the context of whether or not the 99% who did it are sentenced for the right amount. We talked about Judge Paul Cassell. You mentioned Judge Paul Cassell just a minute ago. Judge Paul Cassell, a former federal prosecutor, now a professor, uh, uh, a federal district judge in Utah for a long time. He's the guy who imposed the sentence on Weldon Angelos, who I referred to earlier. Sold three dime bags of pot to a confidential informant over a 72-hour period, had a gun on his person that was neither brandished nor discharged in connection with the offense. Fifty-five years in prison for that. Now, Judge Cassell himself, not, not exactly a soft-on-crime guy, wrote an opinion disagreeing with the sentence he was about to impose, saying there are murderers, there are rapists, there are terrorists, there are hijackers who do not get anywhere near this amount of time in prison. And yet I, as a federal district judge, have no choice but to impose this sentence. And then he said something that would haunt me ever since then, even though he made this statement 15 years ago. Only Congress can fix this problem. We do have to fix it. Now, I'm not yet 100% convinced we get a vote. We need to get a vote. I'm going to keep fighting until we get a vote. I think we can get a vote in this Congress. There's no reason why we can't, no reason why we shouldn't. But what I am certain of is, if in fact we do get a vote, this thing will pass. It's not just that it'll pass with the 75 votes that I've already uh, assured myself through personal conversations with my colleagues, one-on-one, -on -one, that we will get. It'll actually be higher than that. We may well be into the 80s or even reach the 90 vote mark because there are a lot of people who are undecided or leaning yes. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that the day after this passes, we will start to see reforms, reforms that themselves will make our criminal justice system more humane, more legitimate, 
and ultimately inure to the safety and happiness of the American people. Senator, thank you so much. Can we do a round of applause for, for this conversation? We could have, could have kept it going all day, but I'm told Senator Grassley is, wants to get, got to get on the stage and say, tell Mike to stop talking so much. <laughs> and so we're Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.